0: So I think earlier on, earlier on, Stephen was talking about how he likes to get all his hard work done in the, the, uh, the beginning so that at the end, towards the end of the day, you can sort of do emails and things like that. I think this episode has been that way. We front-loaded we we front an awful lot of information, <laughs> and now we're just coasting.
1: Are we still recording? <laughs>
2: Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor. And today I'm here with Bob, Rich, and Steven. We're going to go around and do quick introductions. Then we have a short announcement, and then we'll hop into today's episode topic. So we'll start with Bob.
0: I am Bob Terrio. I am a J enthusiast. I program in J, although not professionally. And I've been doing that for about twenty years, and oh boy there's lots to talk about in j today.
1: I'm Stephen Taylor I've been an APL developer for decades, and i'm these days I'm the kx librarian
3: uh, I'm rich Park I work for dialogue, and these days I teach apL to people sometimes
2: and as mentioned before, my name's connor uh, I'm a professional c plus developer and a huge array uh programming language slash paradigm uh advocate slash, you know, fan. Uh, as those that yeah, I always mention follow me on Twitter now. Um, so yeah, I'll throw it to rich who's got a short announcement. And then we'll hop into today's episode.
3: So in I think the days blur the, uh, for me these days, but I think in about six weeks time, it's the eighth the and ninth of November. Uh, the Dialogue 21 user meeting is happening. It's going to be online again this year as it was last year. And then hopefully with Uh, the state of affairs coming to some more normalcy next year will be in person again but uh, it's online although um, I think you will have to register in advance hopefully by the time this goes up if not shortly thereafter uh, you will be able to do so
2: yeah definitely we'll we'll put all the show um, the links in the show notes for those that are interested Um, I attended both apple seeds and the dialogue virtual last year and it was it was awesome yeah you get to Hang out with fellow, fellow nerds and learn more about uh, you know the array language paradigm and specifically Dialog APL. But sometimes there's some sort of more um, general talks that apply to array languages in general. With that said, I think we, yeah we are going to hop into today's topic. So today's episode is a continuation of I believe it was two episodes ago, so about a month ago we recorded part one of the tacit programming conversation shall we call it um and so uh, we said at the end of that that we had barely even scratched the surface and that we were probably going to have part two three and you know maybe it'll be just become a ongoing series where we continue to talk about you know the pros the cons the differences between different languages like apl uh j bqn k etc so i guess maybe yeah as bob alluded to there was a little bit of news on the j uh reflector or sort of email list so maybe we can start there. I'm not sure how relevant, if it's specifically tacit programming. I'll just throw it to Bob, and then we'll go from there and see where uh, we end up.
0: Um, a couple of episodes ago, we we interviewed Henry Rich. And during that um, interview, we talked about the way Jay used to be. And in the in the past, there was a whole series of trains that you could do and use modifiers, and then you could... Um, you know, um, verbs work on nouns in J, so nouns would be your arguments. And then in the case of conjunctions or adverbs, they're often what other languages call operators, and their arguments are verbs, so they affect verbs. So just as you would expect, a conjunction affects a verb, or an adverb affects a verb. Um, so that's how, how J works. In the In the past, you've been very limited as to what you could do to tacitly describe conjunctions or adverbs now in the far distant past about 20 years ago or maybe 18 years ago you actually could modify those tacitly so you wouldn't have to use an argument to change what a conjunction or a combination of conjunctions and adverbs and verbs did this all sounds very confusing and that's why they took it out so they, they took that out and that and then they said, okay, well, if you really want to do this stuff, you're going to have to do it explicitly. And explicit means now we're going to identify where the arguments come in. So in the case of a conjunction and you're using verbs, U and V would be your variables that would drop in beside your conjunction. You'd say how they wanted to work and you would actually have to explicitly put a U and a V, a U if it was the, the uh, uh, left operand, a V if it was the right operand, and you could really control what you were doing, but you couldn't do it tacitly for adverbs or conjunctions. So we interviewed Henry Rich. We talked about that at length, well, not at length, I guess, for a couple of minutes. And he said, well, don't bother talking about it because it's not coming back. Well, on Sunday it came back. <laughs> it showed up, it showed up in the most recent version of the 903 Uh, Of beta for for J and it's version R. They've been working at this for a while, and my guess is they're going to work at it for a bit longer because suddenly all this stuff came back. And I, I guess I think it was Henry's email about it. Eric sent an email saying, "Oh, make sure you get this one downloaded. There's a lot of change, and it involves the old way of describe you know tacitly describing conjunctions and adverbs." And uh, so I was on vacation and that's a real, I was really frustrated because I didn't get back until last night, my time, and um, I only had an iPad as access to the internet and everything. The problem is an iPad, although there is a J, um, uh, a version of J that you can access through iPads and through iOS. And in fact, if you're really interested in using J, that's a really quick way to download the J app. And, uh, and get it working on your iPad or your iPhone, because you can do that. It's actually kind of a neat little thing. Only problem is, it's version 704. So as a result, it's older, and there's a lot of new things that won't apply to it, but the, but the bones of J are there. At least I could have said that up until Sunday, because now, if they go forward with this, there's a huge difference as to what you're going to be able to do uh, in J as opposed to what you could do before Sunday. Now, having said that, it's really important to note you don't have to do any of this. Because, and, and this is why it was frustrating, because I, I'd heard about this stuff. I'd never had a chance to play with it. And suddenly there's all these discussions going different directions. We should do this. We should do this. We should change this. We should change this. And at first, Henry was really holding a firm line saying, we're not changing a thing. We're going to be doing it the way it was described. But just list, literally this morning, there's been some ideas about using uh, tacit descriptions of conjunctions that weren't being implemented. That Henry's saying, you know what? That would probably be a really good way to implement that, and uh, it's in beta. <laughs> but at least there's 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 some thought now about where we're going with all this. But it really, honestly, if you're if you're just new to Jay. Don't even bother with this stuff right now, uh, because for one thing, it's in beta and it's gonna it's gonna evolve a bit. Um, and then the other thing is it's really confusing. And I've done J for a long time, and I'm gonna, I've got to get my head around some of this stuff because it's it it really changes the way the language. I, I I got it on last night. I tried to do something um, just to check what I was doing. I, I described something that was pretty easy. And then I tried it in the previous version of the beta, and it just said, no, that's not correct syntax. So to that point, I can make it kind of do things. But I don't, honestly, I don't think I can read it yet um, because it, my brain isn't bent in a way that says, this is how these things go together. I'm used to the old way, the way computer worked, and it's, it's changing. So uh, very exciting time, though. You know, may you live in, in, in interesting times.
2: So it sounds like we definitely have to have Henry back on to just have the expert-slash-implementer explain it. Um, All right, I'll throw it to Stephen, and then, yeah, I'll I'll follow up with my questions.
1: I want to speak here on behalf of the easily confused of whom uh, I I, I claim the position as representative. (laughs) So tacit or point-free programming will be a novel concept to a lot of our listeners. Uh, So let me start off by offering... The simplest or one of the simplest examples I know in J, the symbol sequence plus slash divide, sorry, percent and then hash representing plus slash is sum and uh, percent is division and the hash is count or tally. Just Just those four symbols together are the program for the statistical mean or average. And I would point to this as the answer to or the first part of an answer to my question. My question is why on earth would you use tacit or point-free programming? Why would you want to use it? And the first part of my answer here are points to that. So how cool is that? that you could just jam those symbols together and that does average. So something very deep in me, something very important in some part of my soul wants to write programs that just look like that, that have so little ceremony, it's just the pure functions. Now, I can provide a second answer to my own question here. Why would you want to use tacit programming? Um, I think we discussed this uh, when we had Henry on, but, If you've got a tacit program, J at any rate can invert it and provide you with a formal inverse of that. So you can use a tacit program to do under um, type transformations where you transform something to do a particular operation and then transform it back where you might convert a date to some other representation and then convert it back again. If you can express the transformation in tacit form, then J can Provide you with the inverse, the other half of the transformation. Okay, Um, so there's my aesthetic satisfaction, and there's doing unders. What's the rest of the story? Why do we want to? Why are we interested in tacit?
0: Well, and just before I answer the question about why we want to, because I think that's an excellent question, um, I'll just mention that in addition to uh, unders and being able to have something tacit uh, do the inverse. Um, there are some uh, verbs that you actually can't do that with. Um, and so, for instance, shape. If you if you took the shape of something, you do the inverse of it, well, it doesn't really make a lot of sense anymore. But in J, there's, there's a conjunction called obverse, where you can define what that is. So in the case of something that isn't easily defined, you can say, oh, if I'd use, I'll, I'll create this verb, and the first part of it going in, for instance, um, I'm going to have it as shape, and going out, I'm going to have it as doubling all its, you know, results. You could actually do that in J. So you can actually create your own obverse, and 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 that is an advantage of tacit as well, because again, this is, you know, we talked about conjunctions being tacit. This is something you can do with verbs and how conjunctions work on verbs. And so this is the old style J. It's not that hard to understand once you sort of get your head around it. But back to your first, que- your, I guess your. My the, the question I should be answering, which is why tacit? And oh man, my mind has been going a bunch of different directions the last week because there are to me, and I haven't put this together yet because I don't know this stuff well enough, and I, I'm probably going to defer to Connor at this point, because there is, are combinators, and there are is category theory. And my sense is all these things are linked into TACIT. And what TACIT allows you to do is compartmentalize the programs and use them like modules that you're working with other things. And because of the way these modules um, are used, I guess things are used if we're using category theory, it's, it's, you can start to get relationships between these things and prove these things without having to know what's in these things. And that's a real string, strong part of TACIT because you can actually get, um, uh, th- I believe anyway, that you can actually get results that you wouldn't think you can find by the relationships between these TACIT modules. And I'll defer to Connor because I may just spew out a huge amount of malarkey. <laughs> and the, la- the next thing I'm going to be doing the next couple of weeks is trying to find out where these links are because I think there's a lot of excitement in, in what you can do with tacit and how you do tacit. Because, as I said, Jay is just developing this new tacit um, conjunction and adverb stuff. And the better I understand where it lies in relationship to combina- uh, um, combinatory logic yeah. <laughs> yeah, logic, um, and, and, and where it, it, it links up closer to things like category theory, I think we'll have a better blueprint about the appropriate ways to go forward, um, and it'll be really interesting to watch that.
2: Well, I'll just yeah, I think, I think Rich is going to weigh in, and so I'll I'll, I'll hold my uh, thoughts until, yeah, Rich, you go ahead.
0: Yeah, I mean,
3: to me, some of that does sound a bit highfalutin, I don't, I'm going to be honest, uh, but...
2: Shots fired, here we go.
3: <laughs> but like, I, I'm, not, I'm not really against that because I understand, especially the, the language enthusiasts, the language implementer side, and people who get really excited about the new features really connect with that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm not like a hardcore pragmatist. I just end up using what's useful to me. And so it did take me a while. So I know Tacit from Dialog, APL operators, and then trains as they live there. And it's not something you learn very early on in APL, but eventually you sort of stumble upon, upon it or someone like Adam shows you look at this cool thing or, or someone like Steven goes, Hey, look, you can define the mean in, in four glyphs. Isn't that great? And it is. Um, but for me, it took me a while to figure out where I, where my sort of happy place with Tacit and especially trains was um because it is this thing where when you get a really long train people do get thrown off by it and they go oh that's kind of wild and it's actually hard to even some of the power of the terseness of the array languages is being able to see at almost at a glance what's happening and once you've got a long train maybe you start to lose that for some people or maybe it's just me i mean you did I remember hearing you discuss that, like, oh, maybe there's a generation of people growing up with tacit, and they're going to just get it like that, and they're going to run with it, and that would be great and really fascinating to see. That's just not me personally uh, right now, but I do find that I'm um, keep coming back to this. I don't know some paper or some remark made by I think it's his name's Guy Steele, is it the scheme guy? And I remember one of his criticisms of APL being the issue that you can't extend, like a LISP, right? If you write your own LISP code, it looks exactly like all the other LISP code. Now, I don't know LISP, I've just heard this. But with APL, typically, although there are some implementations that allow this, typically you can't redefine the glyphs and you can't define your own glyphs and so his criticism was something along the lines of oh well how can i then extend the language as a user in a way that feels like the core language or something along those lines and what i've found that i've started to enjoy now is that with trains small to medium-sized trains and other tacit definitions you do get that power to extend the language in a way that feels like the original so then you end up with like a small toolkit of your favorite little trains where you don't have to have a whole utility library or utility function that you're pulling out because you can just remember f- off the top of your head these four, or five glyphs or two to five or seven glyphs, depending on how mad you are, um, you know, that do this specific thing that you end up doing quite a lot. Uh, one of my favorites in dialogue, at least, uh, I don't know what the equivalents would be in J or K or BQN, but uh, it's the split by delimiter train. It's a little three train. It's a fork um, that takes a character vector and then some delimiter could be comma or space or any other character you define. And then it will partition that into a nested vector of character vectors. So the easy example is comma separated values, something like this. And it's just not equal, partition, and then a right tack. Uh, and it's kind of cute, it's easy to remember, and I use it a shocking amount of the time, to be honest. So that's my, yeah, that's all I wanted to jump in at this point and talk about my uh, yeah, personal philosophy with trains, as it were, or at least how I use them.
0: Yeah, and to me, you're using them absolutely properly because I, one of the things, I mean, in addition to being hard to understand when a train gets too long, um, the other thing is it starts to become – less general and less usable. Because you now, if you make them too long, they're only going to work in a specific area in a specific way, and chances are you're never going to use that again. Whereas if you use the modules, I believe it's easier to prove that the module is going to do what you want in that area, and then putting them together, now you just have to make sure that they're working together properly. So... That's exactly right. Don't make them too long, and and uh, I'm sure we'll end up discussing hooks later on in the in the uh, story. But uh, there, there's other things that I've thought about in in that area too. But I'm gonna I want to hear what Connor has to say about combinators and uh, uh, category theory and tacit.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. I think category theory, you know, somewhere down the road relates because it it is all about composition. But yeah, for for me. Um combinatory logic and combinators um yeah to, to answer specifically steven's question it enables uh, bar none unparalleled the most beautiful code i've ever seen in my life um and like you know there's apl expressions that i've seen um that are just so beautiful and so expressive in my opinion and yes you need to understand uh tacit programming and trains Or, you know, like they're referred to combinators in other languages. Um, But just there are there are like combinators and and trains are basically composition patterns and they're ways of composing algorithms and functions together in just extremely elegant ways. Um, that is not possible if you 're not doing point free or tacit programming you 're going to need to create some sort of lambda and then use a bunch of parentheses to basically replicate the composition pattern that you want that is given to you from these trains and combinators in array languages. Um, just one small example that I just I tweeted it out a couple weeks ago. And I think I was, it was probably, it was, you know, 1am or 2am in the morning. And I find these days, like I have trouble going to sleep because I'll be thinking about a problem like this just happened on Sunday and I'll be thinking about it, you know, solving it throughout the day in the back of my head. And then I'll realize, oh, there's some other way of solving it. That's really simple. And the way that you can express that in APL or J or BQN or any of these languages, um, it's just so elegant. So this one example, it's a very simple problem. Given a list of numbers you want to um partition it into uh lists of increasing sequences by one so anytime you have a difference that's either negative or greater than one you want to start a new partition so very simply if you have one two three uh 10, 11, 12 that's your list of six numbers you want to end up with a list of two sublists. that's one two three and ten eleven twelve um and you could come up with more complicated examples, but it's it's pretty simple. And where really the beauty of this showed up was when I was trying to solve this in Haskell, because there's an algorithm in Haskell called groupby, which basically takes a list of elements and a binary function that compares adjacent elements and based on the binary predicate. So it's a binary function that returns a boolean. Whenever it returns uh, false, it starts a new partition. So the the most common use case of this is uh, you call it group by and then equal, which is checking whether elements are equal. So if you've got the list 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3, it'll divide that up into three sublists of 2 1s, 2 2s, and 2 3s. Um, and so clearly, this is the algorithm that you want to reach for to solve this you know increasing sequence uh, by 1. But you need a different binary operation than equals, obviously. You need a binary operation specifically That first takes the difference and then checks whether that difference is equal to one or negative one, depending on the order that you're passing things. Um, And to do this in Haskell is non-trivial, like to try and do this with just little small sections where you're composing them, because first you have a binary function that takes the difference, and then you follow that with a unary function that checks, is that difference equal to one? And so you can't compose those using the default composition operator, which is equivalent to the B-combinator, otherwise known as the Bluebird, um, because the Bluebird composes like unary functions. It doesn't compose a binary function then followed by a unary function. Um, But there are multiple ways to express this in APL, the simplest being uh, the three train or the fork, where the left tine is an array or a noun. So if you go one equals minus that's it. You're done. Uh, because what that forms is the equivalent of, um, it's called an atop, I believe. Uh, technically, it's a three train and a top refers to another glyph, but there are two different ways of expressing the same thing. Um, this is known as the B1 combinator or the blackbird, um, where basically you first apply a binary operation and then you apply a unary operation. Now here, it's not really a unary operation because one equals... Um, like you're binding it but the equivalent is to go you know one jot equals which is one bound to equals that forms a unary operation and then a top which is the rank glyph uh, with minus so there's two different ways to express it you can use bind and a top or you can use a three train which they call a fork but what's amazing is that three trains actually express four different combinators they express uh, both the the starling prime or the s prime combinator And uh, the I believe it's called uh, it's a specialization of the E hat combinator, which is known as the bald eagle. Um, And then in the versions where the left tine is an array, it corresponds to the D combinator and the E combinator, which the bird names are dove and eagle. So like a three train because you have the versions where um, one of the tines takes a noun instead of a function. And then you have both the monadic and the dyadic cases with a single like. Uh, juxtaposition of you basically three things you have four different combinators um, and then on top of that you have the two trains which gives you a whole other two combinators but the point being is that when i was trying to solve this problem to get back to the haskell i had group by and then i tried to do basically paren paren equals one n paren uh, dot which is the b combinator and then uh, paren, equal, equal, and paren, and paren. So you just heard a bunch of parentheses and, you know, dots, and there's multiple operations. And that didn't even work because, as I mentioned, the B combinator is not what you want. You want the B1 combinator that takes first a binary function, applies the two arguments to that, and then applies the unary operation. So you specifically want the B1 combinator. And as I mentioned, that ex- that exists in two different, you know, versions or forms in APL. Um, and, like... It exists, and you spell it with three characters. One equals minus. Like you want to, like Stephen mentioned, talking about like no ceremony. It not only is it is it cool. Like it's more than just cool. It is so elegant um, and beautiful. Uh, The fact that you know Ken Iverson came up with like I I would die to know. if he spent, like, a, a certain amount of time studying combinatorial logic, I, I think it's a crazy coincidence that the the seminal text by Haskell Curry was published in 1958, right when he started working on uh, notation, you know, the, the Iverson notation. Now, clearly, um, as this came up in the British APL webinar um, just uh, last week... Um, I asked, you know, when did or is there a list of when these things showed up in in APL? And sure enough, um, Adam linked to the dialogue APL wiki. um, And so trains showed up in 2014 in dialogue 14.0. The left and right tax, they showed up in dialogue 13 in 2011. So three years before trains and and left and right correspond to the uh, the K and the K-I combinators, Kestrel and Kite. Um, And then also in dialogue 18 which was just in 2020 uh over the summer or two summers ago we got a top over constant and and a bunch more combinators so basically it wasn't until the earliest that really sort of powerful combinators you could argue that k and ki um in 2011 but like um i've talked to some people that have programmed an apl and they aren't a big fan and then i'm like well what about like the trains and the, you know, like all these expressions and they're, Oh, like we don't have any of that. Like the new APL doesn't have that stuff. Um, and so it's, it's curious to me that uh, APL actually didn't get what is probably my favorite part of uh, the language uh, until like the last decade. And really these things showed up in J first um, anyway. So I'm, I'm, we gotta, we, we gotta find some people that know that, or that worked closely with Ken um, to get the history of like, how did this stuff uh, like, not sneak into the language it's it's like a huge part of what j was and now what um dialogue apl is and in in my opinion like apl it's known as this array language but it should be known also as like the world's most powerful combinator language um and that yes it is uh you know to to use the word that rich says like a little bit highfalutin um you know t- to hear someone talking about how beautiful it is etc cetera. I'm I'm sure uh, I regret
3: I regret having used that phrase
2: (laughs) but like there's something there where like I I implemented the the group by algorithm in Haskell in APL and then the resulting solution is literally just like the fork which is one equals minus and then I call it chunk by because that's the better name for it um and then the array on the right hand side and you're done and it's just like in what language is that is that possible in and as like elegantly and i'll stop my whatever that was 15 minute monologue on how in love i am with combinator steven
1: (laughs) oh thank you Uh, i want to come back on the highfalutin in the 1980s i i drank a lethal lethally poisoned kool-aid called software engineering which took me away from apl programming uh, for about 15 years, actually, and when I finally came back to it, I uh, made two discoveries. The first was that the, um, the 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 PC implementations of APL, Dialog APL, was the stuff we barely dared to dream of back. When I was originally an APL programmer, all kinds of wonderful stuff. I'm running on machines with huge amounts of memory, and it is definitely a language designed to be run in a vast space of abst- a vast abstract space of huge memory. The second thing I discovered was that sometime around 1990, it seemed like all the smart people had gone to J. I felt a little bit like the lame kid who's left behind at the um, end of the Pied Piper story, where all the children had been led under the mountain, uh, and I didn't quite manage to get in. But I I struggled and I you know downloaded some J and learned a little bit about tacit programming. I uh, said so I was coming back on the highfalutin. This relates to a um, different, uh, different fairy story which is Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack gets magic beans, and the magic beans take him up and through the clouds into a land where he finds a giant's castle, a gold goose. It's new territory. And APL had always seemed to me like that. I started with Fortran when I got to uh, APL and didn't have to spend my poor, scarce brain CPU cycles writing loops and could attend to other things. Uh, AAPL said, don't we worry about all this here. We've got a new land up here. You can think about much more interesting things. When I saw Tacit, when I saw Tacit, I thought, here's the next step. This is gonna take me somewhere else. This is going to help me wake up from whatever I've been sleeping about. And I'm still not there. I still wanna know what it is that, I that i that i could wake up to uh and um and get to
2: yeah it's uh i think yeah i don't know why i fell so quickly and hard hardly or uh, yeah steeply. i don't know i fell off some cliff and i've just been like skydiving since um but yeah just so many times i'm thinking why do i have to write this this way um like there was another problem just the other day it was how do you determine if two sets or lists of numbers are disjoint? They don't overlap at all. And uh, a lot of languages, including APL, they have a, a glyph for intersection. And then you basically just want to check is that intersection empty? Um, and Haskell has both of those functions: null for checking if it's empty, and intersect for the intersection. But once again, like you can't use you can't use the basic dot operator for composition because intersect takes takes two lists of numbers takes two arguments and then null takes a single one. So like these, like you might hear me go like, Oh man, this guy sounds crazy. Um, but like these, these composition patterns, they're everywhere. We are just as, at least as me, you know, I've been programming in C++ professionally since 2014, arguably, I didn't know what I was doing for the first three or four years. So we can sort of not count those. Um, but you know, I, I feel like I've sort of really been, you know, comprehensively knowing what i've been doing for at least a couple years and we don't think about these latent implicit composition patterns because if we need to pass things or evaluate things in a certain order we just use parentheses and we just we you know we evaluate something that's going to get passed as an argument to another function and so we're just used to like oh okay i'll call that first and then store that to a variable then pass that in and that A lot of the times that's just all not necessary. You're, you're really at the end of the day, you're just composing a bunch of operations together. Some of them have two arguments. Some of them have one, some of them have three. And if you know these composition patterns, you can just go, you know, function, 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 put the right, you know, combinators or operators. That was another thing. Take a small break. You know, we started talking about conjunctions, adverbs, uh, nouns, verbs, um, and I meant to do this at the beginning, but totally got carried away with how excited I was. Um, (laughs) um, It's actually doesn't, it's not as hard as it sounds. So a verb, uh, if we translate that to, you know, Python or C++ programmers speak, that's just a function. It's just a function. Uh, A a conjunction or an adverb, and maybe actually we can get some, what's the delineation between the two? uh, That was referred to as an operator in certain dialects. Uh, That's just a higher order function. That's just a function that takes a function and can return a function. So, you know, very simply, you know, an example of a verb that's a function is plus takes two numbers, adds them together or unique takes a list of numbers, returns only the distinct elements without duplicates. Uh, those are both, you know, we call them verbs in APL and other languages, but that's just a function in, in Python or C++. Uh, an operator, or a conjunction or adverb takes a it's a function that just takes another function. So, for instance, reduce or scan. Those are higher order functions um, that they take. Uh, functions like, you know, plus or minus. And then when you combine those, they return you another function. So plus reduce returns you a function that's equivalent to something called sum. Um, so we have different words for this in APL, uh, thanks to Ken Iverson. Um, but really, it's, it's, there are concepts that exist in even non-functional languages like C++ and Python. Um, I don't actually know. Yeah, the, is there a difference? I assume there's a difference between conjunction and adverb in, in J.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's, the difference between conjunction and adverb is, is really simple. Um, conjunctions take two arguments, and adverbs take one.
2: Oh, that seems. I haven't. I take issue with the fact that we use verbs for both monadic and dyadic, and then uh, we have like, where's the where's the symmetry between naming in verbs? Uh, it's all
3: based on. It's all a language metaphor, isn't it? An adverb applies to a verb uh, to to change some quality of it. Whereas a conjunction applies between two verbs to to bind them in some meaningful way.
0: Yeah, and the other thing is that you don't necessarily... Conjunctions can bind nouns to verbs, and and adverbs can take nouns as arguments.
3: Do they do, they do that in natural language? Does that all break down there?
2: I mean, but you, you could say the same thing, right, with, with the verb that t- acts on two nouns, like that they're binding them in some way, but like we still only call them...
3: Yeah, yeah, but what's the... Again, what's the natural language... Uh, in linguistic, uh, metaphor, you're supposed to, uh, th-
2: Oh, I see. You mean like in the, gra- in the grammar world of grammar in terms like that, what's the word?
3: Yeah, exactly. That's where all of the, that's where it all comes from. It's a little bit of a, it's like a APL is a language because it exhibits significant syntactic <laughs> patterns and blah, 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 like a language does, you know, and they just took that to the nth degree when writing the J documentation. Uh, which is cool, but, uh, it's just added to the whole pot of, yeah. are we going to market this outside of the APL world mm. when we have to teach them like 20 new words to do stuff that they've, uh, already seen
2: what's the terminology terminology that bqn uses do you know
3: bqn has these roles doesn't it so there's functions but then it's also got the one modifiers and two modifiers which is very sci-fi matter of fact
0: yeah and and one modifiers i think is the equivalent to what an adverb would be in j and two modifiers which take two operators would be the conjunction
3: all right so at least it tells you it says what it does on the tin right or whatever the phrase is
0: some highfalutin (laughs) phrase by the way, as as somebody who's in Western Canada, I, I dub you Richard a uh, 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 correct usage of the term high flute. <laughs> Thanks.
3: I'm, I'm glad because that would have been embar- even more embarrassing than even using the phrase just to use it incorrectly, isn't
0: it? No, you nailed
1: it, Stephen. I, I've got I've got a question really about the language metaphor. I know that Ken Iverson was that deeply committed to having a strong isomorphism between ling- um, English language grammar and the terms in which he described J, and, and APL for that matter. But that first particularly came into play when he formulated J, and um, I was certainly was introduced for the first time to the notion of using nouns, adjud- adverbs, uh, as terms for in computer science. And they continue, I think, to confuse people from other computer science disciplines to this day. Now, in my long life, I have noticed that Canadians of a certain generation have a much better formal education in English grammar than anybody I know in England. Um, I, Canadians of certainly roughly my own age can spot a misplaced modifier and all kinds of grammatical constructs that um, if I if I recognise errors like this, it's only from an informal um, knowledge of of the syntax. I, I I don't know these things. So this question came up practically a few years ago, when I started working for KX, and it was pressed upon me that most of the people using Q. Uh, didn't actually know what an adverb was in English, let alone in, let alone in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, we did some informal polls around the office, and found there's quite a lot of support for this point of view. So we came to our we came to the conclusion that a metaphor which had been valuable for a certain generation certainly of North Americans or perhaps only ever for Canadians of a certain age in explaining the relationship between these computer science terms by um, in terms of a metaphor from English grammar had outlived its usefulness and um, despite a reasonable amount of quite reasonable resistance um, we, um, we, we mandated that uh, for, <clears throat> excuse me. That adverbs were to um, be called something else. We eventually settled on the verb iterators, uh, that operators would denote things like plus and minus and divide, and uh, the same way they do elsewhere. Uh, and that verbs would become known as either operators or keywords, and all of these would be called functions and so forth. We basically. Redefined the terminology for talking about Q to align it with the way people you um, talk about the same things in um, other computer science fields uh, and I wonder what you guys think about that
3: honestly 5050. Uh, massively in two minds, I think it makes a lot of sense it's a bit of a shame. Uh, and I but but i'm also completely. Um, spoiled, aren't I, you know, uh, living living in a dialogue world, getting used to all those words. Sorry, Bob, what are you going to say?
0: Well, I was just going to say is is one of the questions might be is why have a difference between an adverb that only takes one argument and a conjunction that takes two and give them two different names? It's because as the language is parsed, um, it's interpreted, and as it's parsed, it will parse differently, of course, if you're taking one argument or two. And if you if you just say, oh, well, we'll just have this thing that operates on verbs or nouns, suddenly everything dissolves into this complicated mess where you don't know whether you're taking one argument or two. So you do give separate different names to, for a reason uh, so that you can interpret the language properly. Um, as to whether you call it a one modifier or a two modifier um, or an adverb or a conjunction, um, my sense is there's a lot of truth in what Stephen says. Uh, my grade 8 self had to learn to uh, diagram sentences, um, parts of speech, as well as gr- grammatically. Um, and if I wasn't able to do that, I wasn't going to see grade nine. <laughs> so I had to learn to do it. Um, I'm not sure, although I think, I'm just thinking, um, my, my my younger son can do it as well. So I think it's probably part of the education. I think it's just necessary. Um, and it becomes, to me, sometimes a question of whether you... Focus on the spoken language, or you spoken focus on the written language. Because spoken language, of course, there's all sorts of things we do that are non-grammatical. I've probably broken a dozen um, rules since I've started talking, but um, you know that's that's just the nature of speech and language.
2: Yeah, I would I would say I I tend to I got I don't know I, I heard you know Stephen you mentioned the terminology so I don't. They seem to be slightly different across, you know, J, APL, different dialects of APL, KQ, now BQN as well. Um, so, yeah, the, as, as, as Eric mentioned, yeah, the, the proliferation or the fracturing of these sort of sets of terminologies, I think, is just awful. Um, but I, I think one of my goals is to build a bridge to the rest of the programming world which is massive compared to the little island that we're on. The island's awesome. We're having a party, lots of treasure. Um, <laughs> but like uh, I want to build a bridge because this island is doesn't need to be tiny. It can, you know, everyone can be partying here. Um, and And I would also say that like I think that there's extreme value in notation as a tool of thought and combinators and, you know, verbs or functions and higher order functions, whatever you want to call them. Them being a single glyph or a a digraph, it has immense value in in the playfulness and the malleability of the language and the way you can explore things so quickly. And your your brain starts to change the way that it solves and sees different like you know areas of the island and way to solve problems. Like there's an immense value in having a concise language. If you have to, you know, it seems silly that oh, why would one keystroke versus twelve make a big difference? But it does make a big difference. Um, you know, the fact that flipping the order that you pass arguments via commute, as they call it in APL, or uh, reflexive or passive in, in J, um, having it be a single glyph, it, it's a big deal. And uh, that's great for notation and whatnot, combinators, all that stuff, fantastic. When it comes to the names of these things um, and the terminology, I don't see where the value is there. Like it just gets and that's coming from someone who's coming from the imperative world where we already have predefined terms for this. And I guess if the rest of the world wasn't different, it wouldn't necessarily be a barrier. Um, But especially even going from APL to J, like a lot of the times the names that they come up with things in J, it's it's even once I've learned it, it's it's a it's a barrier like unique is called nub. Um, and I think there are a couple other languages like Haskell that also have that. But I, do, I still don't even know. Why is it called nub? What is is Does that mean something? Can someone answer that question?
3: I don't know. Some kind of archaic term for something or other. I don't know.
2: Yeah. What? Where does it come from? Like, I assume like Ken put so much thought into this stuff. Um, but like at a certain point. It's a it's a
1: wonderful short word straight out of the American Heritage Dictionary, which means exactly what you want it to mean. And there's a good tradition quite outside computing of reviving and reinvigorating useful words and keeping the keep keeping them alive. nubs a nub's a great word
2: what, so what, what's the definition?
1: Well, uh, if unique means all the unique elements out of all the all the unique items out of the list, that's what nub means in everyday life. The nub of the matter is is an is an expression you might come
3: across Right, all right it's, it's 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 archaic kind of yeah You're <laughs> Right. it's uh it's old no one says that
2: no more <laughs> yeah but so that's that's the thing is bob bob's stepped away quickly potentially to get a dictionary or hopefully something's not on fire um but like the passive and reflexive names for um you know commute or or swap it swap's good i i can I swap can and get, selfie yeah i can well no so yeah, so that th- those are the APL terms which is which is great but like reflexive and and passive I just I understand what is trying to be done there but it's just like even though I know it and like putting it putting it in passive tense it's not really what we're doing like it's a stretch and then and that's not even like you can you can be a little bit generous and say okay that's good but when you get to the the combinators there's absolutely zero parallel for composition patterns in the English language, so then we just start making stuff up, like a top. What is that? Oh, it's a it's a word that, or maybe a top is a word. I don't know. A top of mountain, um, but like yeah, that's literally that is what it is. Yeah. But like, how does that have to do with anything of a binary operation? Before
3: the left, the left, the left function is applied atop the result of the other function. That's kind of the idea there. They. they there is, a, there is an explanation for basically all of these things, but I am inclined to agree. That's why I said I like swap and I like selfie, but actually I, I'm less in favor of commute because it is a bit more, it's like technical, technically correct and all the stuff or whatever, but it is less familiar and intuitive. I mean, again, there's also this massive bias towards people who speak English, right, in all of this terminology. So that's kind of not fair as well. Uh, to the international community, but they're kind of cursed to live in that world just because that's how programming is developed as well. So I feel a bit bad about that in general, but I can't change history. So
1: oh, it's a it's a bias not just towards people who speak English, but people who can diagram sentences.
0: <laughs> well, and and, and it, in in I find honestly a lot of times when I'm programming in J, if as, especially since I've come on to the podcast and started talking about Jay, I have to go back and look up these names because that's not what I, I don't name them. Yeah. I've got yeah. the symbol, I know what it does, and that's what I use. And, and I don't think about the name so much until I'm, you know, maybe specifically reading about something that I need to learn about, or I'm trying to explain it to somebody else, and then it really helps to use the same terminology. Um, And then I guess that's, you know, we're sort of in the Tower of Babel, you know, (laughs) that's the, we all speak different languages and kind of mean the same sort of thing, but there's a little bit of nuance between them so that I don't think it's quite as simple as just using the same terms for J as APL, because there are differences in how the languages are structured. I think one of the things that uh, uh, Eric talked about in the last episode was strand, and that is a difference between the two. If you start to mix that up, um, that kind of notation... Um,
2: you, you, you're going to have to learn that there's a difference there.
0: There's just, that's the two languages are different in that way. It's difficult.
2: Yeah. I was, I was thinking in the back of my head that I was trying to remember what they call index and J and I think it's from, um, and I just like, when I stumbled, like so many times I stumbled across something and I'm like, ah, come on. Um, I can see what you're doing there, but come on. Uh, (laughs) Um, all right. Well, I feel like we've been on sort of like a, uh, wandering through the tacit programming forest um at some point i mean i think at the tail end of the last uh tacit episode we were talking about how we didn't even get to any of the like dialogue 18 operators and we didn't talk about diet of cook uh i know we're we're getting close to sort of the hour mark do we even want to you know open any of those cans of worms or is there is there something that's like a bite-sized topic that we can we can tackle or should we just um Ask another open-ended, uh, Stephen. You got an idea? Oh,
1: well, after the end of that session, I was reflecting that for people listening who not actually experienced or tried any tacit or point-free programming, it could sound pretty confusing. So I did a short blog post with an example in Q and in um, Dialog APL of a very small piece of tacit programming so you can get the feel of it. And it's basically a, a range function takes two numbers and generates, it t- takes two integers and generates all the numbers between them. And you wind up at the bottom with a tacit dialogue um, expression for it, which is a down arrow, a little circle and an iota. And that does it. So you can find that on um, 5GOT.com and we'll I think we put the link in the show notes for the last last one, but we can put them in
2: again. Yeah, definitely. That I think, honestly, yeah, these things are for me the easiest to understand. Well, honestly, everything in life for me uh, is easiest to understand if I just see an example, um, especially, yeah, especially when the names of these things, I mean, a top, okay, sure. That's great. But like, Really, what it is is it's it's a composition pattern. And if you just see that pattern a couple times, you're like, oh, okay. And especially if like you run into it, like that's where it makes the most sense for me is when I'm programming and I need, I I know exactly what I need, but it's not the tools that I have at my disposal. And then you go ask on you know some Discord or forum, and they're oh, it's just this, and you're oh my goodness, this is exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> um...
0: When I went on my second career of education, um, one of the things I learned about was different ways of learning, and I think the way of learning that fits best a lot with the array languages is called bricolage, where you build and you build something and you play with it and you, you know, it's uh, we we've often talked about Lego bricks and stuff, uh, those kind of things. To me, there's there's so much in this, and I guess if we were to talk about why is tacit useful. If you were just given a toy and it existed as it was, it would be great, but that's all you could do with that toy, the function it was. But when you're given a toy that you can build things with, like Lego or in the old days, Meccano, if you remember that, uh, Lincoln Logs, all those things, that you'd have the little bits of it and you'd put it together and you'd build something else. And then you could take it apart and build something else. Well, that's to me what tacit is. You don't want to have the thing built so you can't take it apart. The idea is the parts are the tacit parts. And you can take those tacit parts and name them and then put them together. And because you're working in a virtual environment, you can have as many of them as you want. You're not going to run out of a certain type of brick at some point because you just make another one. And uh, and that's what is kind of exciting to be able to build these things tacitly because because you're not including the things that you're working on, you're just including essentially the connections. That's what puts bricks together. And at least that's kind of the way I always think of tacit.
2: Yeah, I can definitely, that resonates with me a lot. Um, I mean, that's any language with a REPL, I just, those are the languages. That's the way I prefer to develop, even with C++. Like we have a website called org, like the community um and it is very it basically you just type in this little sort of window and every time you stop typing, it starts compiling in the background. So it's not a REPL, but it has the feel of a REPL that you're incrementally you're coding, you're seeing your result, you're coding, you're seeing your result. Um, as opposed to I know some folks that they'll just first they'll think for like three days um, <laughs> and then they'll they'll code for a day. And then on the fifth day, they just hit the compile button and it works. Um, I I am not that good. <laughs> I need to see that I got it. The idea wrong the first five times, um, incrementally, and then oh yeah, okay, that didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. And then on the sixth time, I was oh okay, that's a good idea. And then
3: we are Dykstra's coding bums, aren't we? What <laughs> he talks about when he Chris. yeah. Anyway, we don't actually think. We just smash on the keyboard. It <laughs> works.
2: I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's smashing. It's, it's just like,
3: uh, I'm being harsh. I'm being harsh. I I work the same way, Connor, to be honest.
2: Yeah. I feel like that's (laughs) the, it's the rarity of the person that can like go and sit down ahead of time and you know, think of the elegant solution and then just sort of type it slowly and, and have it work. Like a lot of like, even for problem solving for me, like that's why I spend days, weeks, sometimes even years, just in the back of my head playing with little toy problems because, um, it's it's never the first solution that like the only time the first solution is the solution that's actually the best one is one where there's like prior art of like oh i've, I've solved that problem in a different form and so i already because i spent so much time thinking about the solution like that's that's like the classic quip about uh Feynman or whatever is that he always had these beautiful moments where he would go up on a chalkboard and write something and everyone would be astonished but you know in his whatever autobiographies or biographies it was found out that like, Oh no, he had just been storing this stuff up and, and cashing it and thinking about it for years. And then waiting for the perfect moment for the first time to sort of show his proof or whatever, and then just to amaze people. Um, but it, it was never that he was doing that in the moment. It was that he, he had, he had practiced and trained for decades and, and then it led to these, you know, sort of moments. Um, so yeah, even even the overnight success. Yeah, is <laughs> what? Yeah, theres not there some quote about that, Stephen? You should know it. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the one with all the quotes in the in the aphorisms. Uh, something about how overnight success is, you know,
1: twenty years to overnight success.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. There we go. He, See, he's just oh, been perfect.
1: storing them up this whole time. Hasn't he? <laughs> I have the same strategy. It's a
2: substitute for serious thought. It's still, but it's the the effect at the end of the day is wonderful. I always, I always, there's wish I had aphorisms and witticisms that I could just rattle off the top of my head. But typically, it's just like I'm pretty sure there's an old guy quote about someone that said something about death and life, and uh, <laughs> insert that here. Um, actually, actually, I feel like I've, I feel like I've busted
1: here. I keep an XML file of them, and you can find it on my and you can find the whole lot on my website. <laughs>
3: you know, the sad, the saddest part of that by far is that it's an XML file. That's
1: the uh, <laughs>
3: <sighs> oh. Storing quotes is fine. It's uh, upgrade your format.
1: Oh, what would you recommend?
3: I actually have no, I don't really know. All I've heard is criticisms about XML. Probably JSON nowadays. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I was thinking of, of mapping the whole lot into YAML as being much more human, much more oh, yeah. human readable. But um, there's you know my operating system's got an XLT transform which turns the whole lot into MarkDoc and dumps it into my website every time I edit the XML. So it's like, mm, I'm not sure what I do with YAML.
3: It's funny you say that. I don't think this will make it into the final edit. But Now all, <laughs> all my all my notes I make, no, not your bit, what I'm saying now, all the notes I make these days are just pure Markdown files. Like everything's Markdown from the get-go. And if I need to render it as something nice, there's loads of tools to do that for me. Uh, yeah. And I make lists, all nice, and everything else is ASCII or APL glyphs. <laughs> if I need to make little comments
0: or notes, it's just yeah. And and actually, to keep everything in the same thing, that's I think face what we're facing in information technology industry is everybody's coming up with new things on a daily basis, and so that's where I think when Connor talks about building bridges and those kind of things. Those can be more permanent things that you can link the way you're thinking about something to the way other people might be doing something, even though the flavors or the details may change. The, if you can link the bridge to a structure that's pretty solid, you have a chance to be able to bring ideas across the bridge, um, as opposed to the details and all the you know, the implementation, which can be really kind of screwed up between parts of the bridge.
2: Yeah, I wish I wish when bridges were being built or there's idea you know ideas being taken from one language to another or one community to another, like that stuff was more explicitly um called out because a lot of the times you don't know that. You know, there's a really well known compile time metaprogramming library that was written by a individual by the name of Louis Dion, a really, really young, bright guy, um, in C plus plus and it got into the Boost standard library and it's called Boost HANA. Um, But uh, very few people know that that is essentially just the implementation of like the Haskell prelude, like the Haskell standard library in C++ in like a metaprogramming context. Um, and if you're familiar with Haskell, you will recognize like a ton of the function names because they're borrowed. Um, but if you're not familiar, you'll never know um, unless I'm not I'm not actually sure maybe in the documentation it, it points out. Uh, the, the the connection, um, but I think a lot of the times, yeah, these languages. That's why I love I love um, Elixir uh, because Jose Valim, the creator of that language, is constantly saying, you know, I, we I explicitly took this one thing from Closure, and you know, we took the syntax from Ruby, and we took the concurrency model from Erlang, and is never shy about you know explicitly mentioning um, you know where the ideas came from, um, and that that can lead to like cross pollination and whatnot, and Um, some communities just yeah do a way better job than than others like swift is my classic example of because they're out of apple um i think all of the developers and the people working on swift they they do a great job you know whenever they give talks they call out all that but like the sort of upper level management they would prefer to sort of spin it as like guess what we invented? Um, <laughs> and it's like, no, you didn't invent that. That's um, based off of a couple decades of work. And um, yeah, anyways. Well, and
0: and the, the invention part is sort of obfuscation. Ob- like you're trying to hide what you've, you know, has somebody else has done. I think when you were talking about the first example, bringing something across from Haskell to C++, you're just um, importing something. But the building of the bridge, I think, is a significant metaphor because a bridge is... Other people can travel back and forth on a bridge, whereas if you just bring something in and dump it, they can use it, but that's not a bridge. You've, you've imported, but you haven't built a bridge. A bridge is a different thing to build, and I think one of the big challenges of building bridges is when you're building bridges to an area you don't know, you don't know where the other footings are on the other side of the bridge, yeah and you're trying to figure that out and it's sort of you have to learn both areas and then figure out if there's a bridge across and what things go in and what things come out and to me as much as it's all highfalutin to me that's where the link to category theory comes in because I think we're talking about different categories and seeing how they fit together that's that's what you're trying to do when you're building a bridge
2: yeah there was just a podcast uh on Lex Friedman's podcast he had the I'm going to ref- forget his name. Alifont, I believe, is the last name. He was the creator of uh, Anaconda, SciPy, NumPy, like a bunch of data science libraries and ecosystem stuff in the Python world. And um, he, for a brief five minutes, mentions APL and the influence uh, that it ended up having on sort of the early stages of what ended up becoming NumPy, which is basically a, you know an array DSL in, in Python. Uh, but like the few minutes that he talks about APL you can tell that you know he very very peripherally sort of knows about APL and a few of the things he said was incorrect um and that's the thing is it's very very hard to be versed in like you know when you're trying to build a bridge or talk about something um it's very hard to be an expert in everything so uh, you know inevitably when you end up talking about other communities or those what's on the other side of the bridge um yeah bridge building is difficult because you need to know what's on both sides and like the language you know how do you how do you communicate to the people on the other side of the bridge so that they get excited about the stuff that's on your side? Um, yeah, without sort of just sounding sounding like a not a crazy person, but just like <laughs> what is this guy going on talking about birds? Um, is probably you know <laughs> a, cer- a certain number of people are just thinking that. Um, and I haven't even mentioned like where people are thinking. Where do the birds come from? Like why why is a bluebird blackbird? And it comes from a book that was written by a mathematician and To mock a mockingbird. Yeah, to mock a mockingbird. What were we going to say, Rich? I thought
3: you were going to go on like, literally where the birds come from, but it's a different topic entirely.
2: Eggs. <laughs> yeah, where do where do babies come from? Storks. Where do storks come from? Uh, was it eggs? Was it eggs first? Are you sure? You asked where birds come from. Eggs. <laughs> if you'd asked where eggs come from, they come from birds. Right. All right, we're in dangerous territory. Because, uh, this, this podcast, like, fully going off the rails here.
0: Earlier on, Stephen was talking about how he likes to get all his hard work done in the the uh, the beginning, so that at the end, towards the end of the day, you can sort of do emails and things like that. I think this episode has been that way. We front-loaded we we front an awful lot of information. <laughs> and now we're just coasting. <laughs> Are we still recording? <laughs>
2: that will be the opening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any final last words before uh, we wrap up this episode? Um,
0: just that I hope Adam is happy that he will probably get a chance to represent his opinions on, uh, on dyadic hooks. Because I'm looking forward to that. Oh
2: yeah. Because we didn't even get to that. We diet did not cooks, get to so. diet of cooks.
3: I'm mildly relieved that I managed to skirt past that without having. <laughs> I feel like I might have done a disservice. It's not that complicated, and the, and the point is fairly simple. But you know how Adam's passionate about this stuff. I don't want to misrepresent his his fervor.
2: All right. So look forward to part three of this tacit programming conversation, where we pick off where we left off, and Adam tells us about how he feels about diet of Cooks. <laughs> all right thanks everyone for listening uh, happy array programming happy array happy programming. programming happy array program do we say this now
0: we get a different <laughs> and better clothes every time <laughs>